Druids, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? Once again, my name is Reverend Ann Dunlap. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver. You can learn more about me at fierceRevRemedies.com. And I also coordinate faith work for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. And I'm grateful to be with you today, wherever you are listening to this right now. I'm joining you again today from the sunny prayer room on the back of our house. It's a bright, unseasonably warm day, windy like it can be along the front range in the spring. The crocuses are blooming. The tulips and daffodils are pushing their way into light. But the trees and lilacs are still quite bare. The yard's still quite brown. So my body is confused about what season we are actually in. Maybe the earth is too. Will you breathe with me? A breath of thanksgiving to the east for air, to the south for fire, to the west for water, to the north for earth. A breath of thanksgiving for the Cheyenne and Arapaho of this land a breath of thanksgiving for sky and sun, a breath of thanksgiving for the ancestors who surround us, and a deep breath of deep thanksgiving to the divine creator of us all. Amen. So today we're looking at the text for February 26th, Transfiguration Sunday. And I'm really just going to focus on Matthew 17, 1 through 9, Matthew's version of the story. Transfiguration Sunday. What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with anything? Let me tell you something about how I prepare to preach or prepare for these podcasts. I read the text through a few times. I might read the notes in my Oxford annotated NRSV and the Jewish annotated New Testament, but not much beyond that. I recall what I've learned in previous studies of the texts and in my seminary classes. And then I put the texts in my back pocket and go on about my daily life. I let them stew about in my brain and heart and body and see what rises up as I shovel out barns at the goat farm clean up the kitchen at night, march in the street, contribute ideas in an organizing meeting, pray with friends, 
and try to keep up with the daily enraging heartbreak that is the news these days? What questions, what images won't let me go? What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with anything? That's the question that kept rising up for me as I carried these texts around. What does Transfiguration, this institutional commemoration of what exactly, have to do with the violent repression happening all around us every single day? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be Sanctuary for you. We lost it somehow. When the church became a place to protect the holy instead of a holy place of protection, we lost our way. Forgot that we are called out from behind our fortress walls and deep into the mess of it. And we've made a mess of it. Mistake ourselves for the good Samaritan and not the lawyer or the priest, too busy or too afraid to get our hands dirty? When was the last time you did something for someone who couldn't return the favor? When was the last time you protected someone? Sanctuary, the radical act of holding space for the oppressed against all comers, and they have been coming, white supremacists and police and deportation enforcement for unarmed black people and the homeless and the refugees, doesn't your heart break when God's does? Or does your God only care about people who look like you, who wear little gold crosses and go to your church on Sunday? I ask you again, doesn't your heart break for the fractured families and frozen bones and all the blood spilled across the evening newscast? Just another day in America. Just another day when it's good to be white and Christian and safe. Forgetting that our own teacher put his body between a woman and a death squad, he made himself into a sanctuary, and we profess to follow in his footsteps. So, who will we become a sanctuary for? Who will we wade into battle for? Who will we welcome into our homes when the dogs are at their heels? Who will we speak up for, stand for? Who will we surround in love, bend our backs over and hold to our chests? Who will we create a holy place of protection for in the name of our God? In the name of our weeping Jesus, who will we keep safe? Who is welcome in our sanctuary? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. Tried and true. Our own teacher put his body between a woman and a death squad. He made himself into a sanctuary, and we profess to follow in his footsteps. What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with any of this? 
That's the question I carried in my heart with me last week when my dear friend Jeanette Vizquerra entered sanctuary on February 15th as an act of resistance against her deportation. You may have seen her story in national news, how she's been fighting her deportation since 2009, fighting for herself and her children and her community, how she's been leading us into believing in the power of organized community because we've gotten her out of immigrant detention not once, not twice, but three times. How she was granted five stays of removal under Obama's rules, but now suddenly, but not surprisingly, under Trump, her stay application was denied, even though her case is stronger than ever. Of course, Jeanette is blamed, but let's be clear. ICE did what ICE had wanted to do from the beginning, which was to deny Jeanette's stay and deport her. What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with any of this? That's the question I carried when I appeared at the ICE office with Jeanette's lawyer last Wednesday, as she had asked me to. That's the question I carried as we walked in and saw ICE police filling the lobby. Not normal at all. And that's when we knew they would have arrested her if she had appeared. That's the question I carried as we met with the ICE officials and heard the smirking words, she's now a fugitive, and we're only following orders, come out of their mouths. That's the question I carried as we spoke to the community gathered outside afterwards, as we spoke to the press, and as I drove back across town to Jeanette, where she is now in sanctuary at First Unitarian, to cry and pray with her and her children before she met with press in the sanctuary upstairs. What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with any of this? I kept coming back to Matthew. What is happening here? Why does it matter? Why is this story told three times in the Gospels and then again in this random little letter attributed to Peter? What possible difference does it make to someone like Jeanette? What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with any of this? And what if the answer is nothing at all? Lord, prepare me be a sanctuary pure and holy tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary The trouble with the lectionary is that it cuts and jumps all over the narrative of whatever story we're in. Last week, for example, we were in Matthew uh, chapter 5, and now we've been in this section of Matthew for quite a few Sundays uh, now, exploring Jesus' teaching after he's organized his community. Then suddenly we're in chapter 17? 
Look, treating texts like this as if they're disconnected from their own story, sealed off in gold leaf and glass by themselves, is a disservice and dilutes the meaning of the text. We can't just act like this moment, this event called transfiguration we're trying to commemorate, doesn't come without a context. That nagged at me. So I wanted to know, where are we anyway in this story Matthew is trying to tell? I worked my way forwards in the story a little, and backwards a lot. The first thing I noticed is, Jesus is at work before and after. Teaching, healing, feel-good mountaintop experience. Back to teaching and healing. We've probably heard that sermon, right? You can't stay on the mountaintop trying to prolong that mountaintop experience. You have to come down. I've heard that sermon for sure. I suppose there's nothing wrong with it per se. But I don't think it's enough anymore. Maybe it was never enough. Certainly it's not enough for the times we're living in now. And then there's this. I don't actually think Jesus' experience on the mountain was some kind of sudden mystical feel-good moment. No, I think he was driven to the mountain by grief, by anguish, and maybe even fear. Look what happens in Matthew. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, the first story we get of Jesus as an adult. Then he's tempted in the desert. One might say he has a political awakening. And then when he returns, he learns that John has been arrested by Roman imperial collaborators, a.k.a. Herod, and jailed. Jesus responds by beginning to organize his community, pulling them together and then steeping them in the teaching of their tradition. In chapter 8, they get to work, teaching, healing, building community, definitely associating with people they are not supposed to. Jesus gets challenged, and sometimes he's asked or even forced to leave the town he's in. They're traveling around, though, teaching, healing, organizing, and then Jesus empowers his comrades to go out and do the same without him in chapter 10. John is in prison all this time. In chapter 11, John's friends come talk to Jesus, and we see Jesus talking about how the kingdom of heaven, which is to say God's unempire right here, right now, suffers violence, like the kind of violence John is suffering. Jesus sees that John's imprisonment is unjust. And they keep moving. Jesus keeps moving, teaching, healing, organizing, challenging power and unjust rules. And then Jesus is rejected in his hometown. End of chapter 13. And then chapter 14, Herod gets wind of Jesus. And then Herod executes John. Of course, the women are blamed, but let's be clear. Herod does what Herod has wanted to do from the beginning which is to murder the prophet. What I want us to see is that the persecution of John the Baptist by Herod is a key factor to Matthew's story. The tension around Jesus increases as we move through the gospel, and that tension is often tied to John. Jesus has to have an eye on what has happened to John, 
for doing almost exactly the same things that Jesus is doing now. John, arrested, jailed, executed. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. That's the verse 1413 that comes immediately after Jesus is informed of John's execution. This is the first time in Matthew's narrative that we see Jesus actually trying to get away. And between now and the transfiguration story in chapter 17, it happens repeatedly. Jesus keeps trying to get away, but he keeps on getting interrupted by his disciples, by crowds, by challengers, even by the weather. He keeps teaching and healing and dealing with challengers, but I see something has shifted. We see the strain on him, how he treats the Canaanite woman, for example, how he starts warning his people, and he keeps trying to get away. Maybe he's trying to get away to deal with the shock of John's execution, to figure out what it means, to figure out how he's supposed to keep on. And then look here at the end of chapter 16. First, he asks his community, what's the gossip about me? And then he says to them, for the first time, I think they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Are you coming or not? That's the context in which we come to the transfiguration story. Not a story of some friends who had a lovely experience of the divine out of the blue on a mountain in the middle of a nice hike. No. They're going to kill me. Are you coming or not? Jesus has been doing the work, running more risk all the time, and now John is assassinated by imperial collaborators. Jesus is now fully aware of what it could cost him to continue his divine work. And I think it troubles him, unsettles him. He basically cusses out Peter, one of his closest friends. No, I think he goes to the mountain with intention. He finally, finally gets away with a few friends, carrying his anguished, grieving heart up to the mountain where no one can get to him. I think Jesus went up the mountain to remind himself who he was, that he had resources, that he was loved. I think he went up the mountain to surround himself with community and especially with the ancestors, Moses the liberator and Elijah the fighter against idolatry, and to hear those words once again from the divine, the same words he heard at his baptism, you are my son, the beloved. You are mine, God says. And only then does Jesus come back down. Very clear that what happened to John will happen to him as well. And then, well, then Jesus goes back to work. But Jesus doesn't go back to work until he prepares himself, prepares himself on that mountain with resources and allies and ancestors and the voice of the divine. And his friends miss it because his friends, well, they don't want to come back down.
We lost it somehow. When the church became a place to protect the holy instead of a holy place of protection, we lost our way. Sanctuary. The radical act of holding space for the oppressed against all comers, and they have been coming. They came for John. They are coming for Jesus. Jesus has this clear now, but his friends don't quite. They see how Jesus is transfigured, shining like the sun. They see how the ancestors, Moses and Elijah, show up to talk to Jesus. But they miss what all this is for. They want to stay. They want to build structures, dwellings, sanctuaries, and stay. Sanctuaries. The Greek word that NRSV translates as dwellings well, it means that, yes, or tent, or tabernacle, as in God's dwelling place. As in, it's the same word the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uses for the tabernacle, the sanctuary, Moses is instructed to build in Exodus 26. So Peter wants to construct a sanctuary building, three in fact, and stay on the mountain, and it's hard to blame him since John is dead and now Jesus thinks he will be too soon. Why not stay up here with the ancestors and hide and keep safe? But that's not what sanctuaries are for. I want to imagine Jesus being so gentle and tender with his friends when he tells them not to be afraid. I want to imagine that Jesus is transfigured, not just in appearance, but also out of the strain and anguish he had been carrying since learning of John's execution. That he finds his center, his grounding again, his preciousness as beloved of God. And that is what helps him reach out to his friends and to head back down the mountain and back into the work that will indeed cost him his life. In the transfiguration, you see, Jesus becomes the sanctuary. The moving, teaching, healing, organizing, loving, challenging, defending, risking sanctuary who was never meant to be confined to the four walls of a building. What does Transfiguration Sunday have to do with anything? Nothing, really, if we turn it into a risk-free tale with a can't-stay-in-the-mountaintop experience-forever moral. Is that a tale that would have helped Jesus deal with his anguish? With the threat on his life? Is that a tale that will guide us in our resistance to forces that are coming for the Johns and Jesuses of our day? For the Transfiguration story to have any meaning as a resistance resource for Jesus and his friends, and for us today, then we have to tell it like it is. John is dead, and they are coming for Jesus. And he goes up the mountain to prepare himself to be a sanctuary, to remind himself this is who he is meant to be, a sanctuary, a place of holy protection moving in the world against all comers. He prepares himself and then he gets back to work. No buildings built to keep them safe, to hide away in. No. 
We, as Jesus' followers, are meant to be a holy place of protection too. Sanctuaries, as individuals, as communities, against all comers. So for the Transfiguration story to have any meaning as a resistance resource, we have to tell it like it is to ourselves too. That yes, there are times we must draw away to the mountain to prepare ourselves, to remind ourselves of who we are meant to be, who the divine created us to be. But we are not meant to stay there, not meant to hide there, not meant to build four walls and never come out. No, the mountain is for preparation, to allow ourselves to be transformed, transfigured into sanctuary for each other, and we come back to the work regrounded, recentered, and ready. So on this Transfiguration Sunday, when the Herods of our day are coming hard for our neighbors, for our people, let's ask ourselves honestly, are we prepared to be a sanctuary with our very lives? Are we prepared to give up our buildings to be actual sanctuaries for those needing it? Herod is coming. Herod is here. Are we prepared to be a sanctuary? this week is this. How are you preparing to be a sanctuary? The need for us to show up as sanctuary is greater than ever. We see the attacks on Muslims, on Jews, on refugees, on immigrants. Just today, February 21st, new directives from ICE were announced that will more than double the number of immigrants targeted for deportation. We see immigrants being arrested by ICE at their check-ins, at court hearings, outside of churches, and in massive raids around the country. How are you preparing to be a sanctuary? A quick action to support Jeanette Vizquerra is to contribute to the Metro Denver Sanctuary Coalition and to her legal fund, and to sign her petition in support of her case. Links will be in the transcript and on our SoundCloud page. But Herod is coming, we know, for anyone who threatens his power. We must do more. So again I ask, how are you preparing to be a sanctuary? How are you preparing to show up for your community as an individual, as a community? Not only for Muslims, refugees, immigrants, but also for queer folk, trans folk, poor folk, for activists on the ground. How are you preparing to be a sanctuary? How are you joining the fight to create sanctuary policies for your city, for your schools? How are you contributing to community defense efforts to show up for impacted communities? Here's the most important ask though, especially for pastors and church members listening. What are you doing with your literal building? How are you using your literal building as a sanctuary for those Herod is coming after. 
The New Sanctuary Movement, Mi Gente, and United We Dream all have amazing resources for how to advocate for sanctuary policies for your city and your schools, how to be part of community defense efforts to show up for impacted communities, and how to become a sanctuary church. Utilize these tools to create sanctuary in your community. Herod is coming. The temptation is to want to hide in a tent on the mountain and call that our sanctuary, but that is not what sanctuaries are for. Sanctuary is how we resist Herod with our bodies, with our resources, with our lives, with our literal buildings we call sanctuaries. It's risky, yes. You may lose members, yes. You may lose money, yes. You may get targeted yourself, yes. But remember Jesus. They're going to kill me, he told his friends. And then he said this, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And then on the mountain, he touches his friends who are scared. Get up and do not be afraid. Go be sanctuary. And remember that the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your efforts. We're here to support your efforts. So thank you for joining me today. An immense thanks to my friend Mallory Everhart for her spoken word piece that contributed so much to today's podcast. Our next podcast will be a special on Lent, and that should go live the week of February 27th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with me there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts will be available as well on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. Blessings to you in all that you do to become sanctuary and to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thanks so much.